Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you. And I pray on the Sabbath you would give me the words to speak. May the message be clear. May it give us a clearer understanding for your will for our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for our message this morning is Progressive Christianity, and you may, be, may wonder where I'm going with this message. Let me start off with our scripture reading with a few other thoughts, and then I will get to the main idea for the message this morning. In, in the book of Jude, in the epistle of Jude, Jude writes to the early Christian believers, and we're going to read the first four verses here before we move on to some other verses. And here we read, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So it's a standard introductory greeting at the beginning. But in verse 3, Jude starts to say some things that should cause the ears of every Christian to perk up. In verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Here's what Jude is saying. Brethren, my an original idea, when I was going to write an epistle to you, a letter of exhortation to you, I was going to write to you of the common salvation. But something happened. It was necessary for me to write unto you and exhort you. So in other words, circumstances changed in the early Christian church where instead of giving a simple message of how we are saved by grace through faith, which is a message which will stand the test of time until Jesus comes back and which we could always stand to hear more about. But Jude said it was necessary for me to change what I was going to write to you about. And what I am writing to you is that I am exhorting you, I am begging you, I am pleading with you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, is there a reason why Jude would say such a thing to the early Christian believers? Does he have false alarm bells? Is he a fear-monger? Is he just someone who has a tendency to worry and to cry wolf too many times? Is that what's happening here in the early Christian church? No, it's not. There is a reason why Jude is writing this message of exhortation. In verse 4, he tells us why he is writing this letter. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Or in other words, there are men who have come into the church unnoticed, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, churning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there are men who have come into the Christian church, this goes back to the first century A.D., who come in unnoticed and they change 
the message of true grace, and they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, the word lasciviousness is a big word, but it simply means turning God's grace into a license to keep sinning. That's what it means. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they're denying God the Father and they're denying Jesus the Son. Now, I'm not going to continue through the rest of the book of Jude. This is a platform for where I'm headed with the rest of the message today. Needless to say, though, if you study the book of Jude, you will find that the very issues that troubled the early Christian church are going to be the very issues that trouble God's last day church. And I will just give you a hint by saying when you get to the end of the book of Jude, Jude says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That is a prophetic picture of the 144,000 who stand without fault before the throne of God. And what Jude is contending with in this epistle is a false gospel that would cause Christian believers to be kept from the kingdom of God. And that is why he says to the early Christian believers, I exhort you. I beg with you, I plead with you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Friends, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians today, we stand on the word of God, the pure word of truth that has been passed down to us from the fathers of our past, the early, the, the Old Testament apostles and the, the New Testament apostles. We are standing on a foundation that was laid from the scripture and from Jesus. And for us to turn away from the faith which has been delivered to us is a very dangerous thing to do. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, we have been told that there is a need for there to be watchmen in the church. In Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 7, it says, So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way. The wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. But thou hast delivered thy soul. You know, there has come a tendency into the Christian church at large to shy away from a straightforward preaching of scripture because we are afraid of offending people and stepping on their toes, when in reality, if we truly love everybody, we will give them a clear admonition from scripture of what God has said to us about what is right and what is wrong. We shouldn't come to church with an expectation that we'll be patted on the back for living a life of sin. We should come to church with the expectation that we will be challenged in our walk with Jesus to draw closer to him and with an understanding that it is our sins and our iniquities that have separated us from God. Scripture warns us in Matthew 7, 15 that false prophets will come in sheep clothing in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now I'm going to address a topic today. 
that will hopefully shed some light on some of the challenges that we as God's people are facing in the time that we are living in. And I came across a blog this week that really summarized some of these thoughts nicely. It's a blog by a, a woman by the name of Alyssa Childers. And she wrote a blog entitled, Five Signs That Your Church Might Be Headed Towards Progressive Christianity. And so we're going to look at these five signs, and I'm going to add some Bible verses into the commentary. And we are going to see what the Bible says versus what progressive Christianity is saying. Now, I might hasten to add that the word progressive is a term used by such people in a way that I would not consider to be progressive. I would call it really regressive. Now, the first thing, and actually maybe I'll just read all five points and then we'll go through each one of them. So here's the five points. Number one, they have a lowered view of the Bible. Number two, feelings are emphasized over facts. Number three, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Number four, historic terms are redefined. And number five, the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. So we're going to go through these points. So number one, there is a lowered view of the Bible. Now, as I said, as Seventh-day Adventists, we stand on the Word of God. We came into existence because we followed the Word of God, and by every word that proceeded out, out of the mouth of God, we simply followed where the truth of Scripture led us, and that's how we came to an understanding of the Sabbath message and of the sanctuary message and of the second coming message, that Jesus is coming literally in the clouds of heaven. We, we understood that some of the popular Christian ideas of a thousand years of peace before Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on this earth has nothing to do with what scripture says. We have an understanding that Jesus is coming to deliver his people from a world of sin, that there will never be a thousand years of peace and prosperity before Jesus comes back. These are some things that we came to understand as Seventh-day Adventists as we came into existence as a church. Yet amazingly, there are some, not just in Adventism, but in Christianity at large, who have developed a lowered view of what the Bible is. One of the main differences between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity is the view of the Bible. Historically, Christians have viewed the Bible as the Word of God and authoritative for our lives. But progressive Christianity generally abandons these terms emphasizing personal belief over biblical mandate. So what would some examples of this be? Well, first of all, they say, they don't say that the Bible is the Word of God. They say the Bible contains the Word of God. You see the difference? So if you say the Bible contains the Word of God, that means you can pick and choose which part of the Bible contains the Word of God versus which part of the Bible is the Word of God. So you he may hear some people say, you know, the Bible is a human book written by human authors and it has human error, therefore we have to pick and choose. And then you may hear someone say, you know, I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. 
I know that he says very clearly that the bishop in the church should be the husband of one wife, but I don't agree with him on that. Because the Bible was written in a context at that time for that culture, so I can't really accept what Paul is saying. Now, not to get off on that particular issue, but for those who like to say that Paul was giving a cultural argument for his time, Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy to a traveling minister who went all over the early Christian church to all the churches. Timothy was tasked to raise up churches, so Paul was giving him a standard to use in every culture, in every church, no matter the situation, not just one place. We see as Seventh-day Adventists and as Christians in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the admonition in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, where it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All of Scripture, not just the parts that we agree with. And if we find a passage in Scripture that we don't agree with, it's probably because our lives are living in contradiction to the revealed will of God rather than the other way around. God and his love to us has made his will very clear to us. And one of the powerful things about Scripture is that when we understand the power in the word of God, it changes our lives. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Roman centurion had an understanding of the power of the word of God. The Roman centurion understood that Jesus is the word, because when his servant was sick, he said, Jesus, you're a man of authority, just as I'm a man of authority. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And go here and he does that. You're a man of authority as well, so just speak the word only and my servant be healed because your word has the highest authority in the universe. Now, if we get away from the authority of the word of God and deny the power of the word of God, how can we expect the power of the word of God to change our hearts and our lives if we don't even believe what it says? And Jesus is saying, I have not found faith in all of Israel like this Roman centurion. Jesus is looking for Christians today to not lower the view of the Bible, to not bring it down to a cultural book, limiting it to the concept of being an ancient text, but to have an understanding through faith that the Bible is still the living word of God today. The Bible does not simply contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God, and it has power to change our lives. Rather than disagreeing with the Apostle Paul on various issues, or the Apostle Peter, or perhaps even Jesus himself, let's seek to follow Jesus and to order our lives and surrender to him when we read the Word of God and apply it to our lives. Now, point number two, feelings are emphasized over facts. In progressive churches, personal experiences, feelings, and opinions tend to be valued above objective truth. As the Bible ceases to be viewed as God's definitive word, what a person feels to be true 
becomes the, the ultimate authority for faith and practice. Now that's a dangerous place to go. What you feel to be true, as opposed to what the Bible says. Now I'll have to say this. When I lived in Southern California, I was having dinner one Saturday night. This was just probably two or three months before Joelle and I got married. So this was about 10 years ago, because Joelle and I are going to be married 10 years as of August this year. We were having dinner with another couple who were going to be married about two months before we were. And they described a conversation they had with a young man who went to a certain university, of which I will not name. And this particular individual said, you know, maybe my classes have messed with my thinking, but if my conscience goes against what the Bible says, I've got to go with my conscience. That's a dangerous place to be. If your conscience is going against the Bible, it might just be because your conscience is like the serpent of old that is saying, did God really say that? You may hear comments such as this. You know, that Bible verse just doesn't resonate with me. I just can't believe Jesus would send good people to destruction. And this one hits closer to home, and it hits to an issue in our time. And I'll, I'll say this. I have a relative that I had dinner with not too long ago who said something very similar to this. The thought, and here's the idea. I thought homosexuality was a sin until I met and became friends with gay people. Now, let me say this. We're not here to condemn gay people and show them hate. If we do that, then we don't have a good Christian experience, right? We're here to show them the love of God. But if we show gay people that they can keep living the way they're living without any consequences for a lifestyle that is clearly condemned in Scripture, are we really showing them true love? Because one of the arguments in Christianity today is that if we're going to show these people true love, we will accept their lifestyle, we will accept their practice, and there is nothing wrong with what they were, are doing. We just have to get up with the times, get up with the culture, and be accepting of who they are without expecting any change. Now, let me read to you what the Bible really says. And I'm not going to go to the Old Testament verses, which, by the way, those who advocate for this lifestyle say that these verses of Scripture are clobber texts. Now, if we use the Bible in the wrong way, certainly we can beat people over the head. But if we are showing people in love what God's plan for their life really can be, then these are not clobber texts, but words of love that are designed to set our lives in order. Now, this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, does not particularly pick on one sin. It has a list of sins. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So the Apostle Paul is saying here, Do you not know that the unrighteous, or those who are living in sin, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's the question he's asking, because the answer is obvious. If you are living an unrighteous life apart from the righteousness of Christ through faith, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, be not deceived, because there's a deception that has come into the Christian church that says you can live an unrighteous life and still be saved. 
And the Apostle Paul says, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And I'll stop there first. Because we will talk about the rest of the passage next. But there's even a problem in the church today where there are people who are fornicators, which we know what that means, idolaters. There's people who have made idols in their lives, adulterers, and we just sweep those things under the rug and say, who are we to judge? And yet then we come back around and say, well, we can't accept homosexuality, but we're not dealing with the other sins in the church. Now, God says, listen, don't be deceived. If you are a fornicator or an idolater or an adulterer, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Continuing on, nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Now, in King James language, it's sometimes hard to understand what Paul is saying here. If you have like the NASB, it's very clear. Now, to be effeminate means to be a man and you're denying your masculinity and you're trying to be like a woman. In other words, you're trying to be transgender. Okay? And then the other one, it says those who, when it says abusers of themselves with mankind, the NASB says those who practice homosexuality. It's very clear. So to say, oh, who are we to judge? Only God can know the heart. The Bible tells us. We don't have to guess as to what the outcome will be if we don't in love warn our brothers and sisters. Now again, if you're in living, and I don't know the hearts of people here, but maybe there's someone here who is under the table doing something in an adulterous way, that's the same issue. Whatever the case may be, God says don't be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor those who practice homosexuality. Then verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we stopped right there, you would walk away like, man, this is, this is pretty, pretty brutal. It's like, you're not going to go to heaven if you're doing this, 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 and this. Well, sometimes we need to have our cages rattled just a little bit to be reminded of the malignity of sin and just how much God hates sin. Now, remember, God hates sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. Okay? Now, here's the amazing thing that Paul says in verse 11. And such were some of you. But, now here's the contrast, you used to be that way, but you're not anymore. That's the way you lived when you were living a life of sin. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, when you come into a saving, justifying, sanctifying relationship with Jesus, the sins of your past become a practice of the past in your life. Whatever you may be struggling, and there's a whole list of things, fornication, idolatry, adultery, transgender issues, homosexual issues, theft, covetousness, 
being a drunk, being a reviler, extorting people of money, all of those things that are signs that you live an unrighteous life, those are things that Scripture says clearly through the power of God you can gain the victory over. So why are we as 21st century Christians trying to neutralize the power of the Word of God? Because the power of the Word of God brings freedom and relief from a life of bondage to sin. What may seem to be freedom in reality ends up being bondage. So that's point number two. Feelings are emphasized over facts. Point number three, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. And a certain progressive author by the name of John Pavlovitz wrote, There are no sacred cows in progressive Christianity. Tradition, dogma, and doctrine are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity. So, wow, so anything can be reinterpreted, including doctrine. So progressive Christians are often open to redefining and reinterpreting the Bible on hot-button moral issues like homosexuality and abortion and other cardinal doctrines such as the virgin conception and the resurrection of Jesus. They say such things as the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual to speak truth. Are you kidding me? Oh, Jesus didn't really have to be raised from the dead for us to gain some truth. It's a nice symbolic idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, let me read to you the Apostle Paul again, as he seems to be the one that has good answers to all of these weird ideas that are coming into the Christian church. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17, he says, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Now, he's addressing the issue that the Sadducees taught, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Notice verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. In other words, there is no redemption if Jesus is not raised from the dead. And we understand why, because Jesus was resurrected so that he could go to heaven to finish the work of redemption as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And, of course, they mention other things that can be offensive and need to be reinterpreted or updated within a modern framework. Listen, friends. We do not allow modern culture to frame what the Bible says. We live our lives based on what the Bible says because we love Jesus, and Jesus is the Word. Now, a couple of other points, and I'm going to get to my um, closing thoughts here. Point number four, historic terms are redefined. So... They will say such things like, if you ask them, do you you believe the Bible is divinely inspired? They'll say, oh, sure it is. But they place that inspired in quotes in the same way that they would say other Christian books, songs, or sermons are inspired. And you may hear certain comments such as, God wouldn't punish sinners, he is love. Sure, the Bible is authoritative, but we've misunderstood it for the first 2,000 years of church history. And finally, it's not our job to talk to anyone about sin. It's our job just to love them. Well, then why does the Bible talk about sin? And if we're going to follow Jesus, and if Jesus condemned sin, we will follow Jesus as well. Again, in the right and loving way. 
And then finally, this is the last point, and then we're going to get to the closing point. The heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Now, this is very interesting. Here's some of the thoughts. There is no doubt that the Bible commands us to take care of the unfortunate and defend those who are oppressed. This is a very real and profoundly important part of what it means to live out our Christian faith. However, the core message of Christianity, the gospel, is that Jesus died for our sins. Now, this is true, what I'm reading here. The core message is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and resurrected, and thereby reconciled us to God. This is the message that will truly bring freedom to the oppressed. However, many progressive Christians today find the concept of God willing his son to die on the cross to be embarrassing or even appalling. Can you believe that? And this is what they say. They sometimes refer to the death of Jesus as cosmic child abuse. The idea of blood atonement is de-emphasized or denied altogether with social justice and good works enthroned in its place. They say such things as sin doesn't separate us from God. We are made in his image and he called us good. Well, that's before sin came into the world. Number two, God didn't actually require a sacrifice for our sins. The first Christians picked up on the pagan practice of animal sacrifice and told the Jesus story in similar terms. So they, they lower the cross and bring it down to the level of a pagan sacrifice. Absolutely ridiculous. And then finally, they say, we don't really need to preach the gospel. We just need to show love by bringing justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. Now, the last part is, yes, we do need to bring justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. But that doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel truth as well. And in fact, James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, perhaps sometimes as Christians, we've done a, a better job of trying to keep ourselves unspotted from the world and we've forgotten to do the good works of visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. But pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to do both. So we don't separate them apart from each other and say they are mutually exclusive. Now, as I close, I'm going to share a few verses. And I'm going to start by going to Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking of John the Baptist. And as they departed, Jesus, after John's disciples departed to go back to talk to John the Baptist. As they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? And then he asked a question. A reed shaken with the wind? Now let me ask you a question. Is there any doubt that John was not like a weed or a reed shaken in the wind? John stood true, he stood straight, he stood tall, and he was not afraid to call sin by its right name. And Jesus identifies that characteristic of John when he says, what did you go out to see when you went to hear John preach in the wilderness? Was he like a reed shaken with the wind that whenever a new wind of doctrine would blow, he would blow in the direction of the new doctrine? Every time a new idea comes into the church, that's the latest idea, the latest fad that you're going to hang your hat on. Like, oh, this is why Jesus hasn't come. This is why Jesus hasn't come. Or this is how we need to change the church. And before you know it, you don't believe anything. 
in Ephesians 4, verse 14, the Apostle Paul again admonishes us to not be blown about by, or carried about with every wind of doctrine. Friends, we need to have a strong foundation in the clear word of God. And John the Baptist, who Jesus said at that time was the greatest of the prophets, was not a reed shaken by the wind. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 16, 13, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Don't ever buy into the idea that truth is relative and that we really can't know what truth is because if we are under the guiding influence of Jesus in our lives and the Holy Spirit who has been sent to guide us into all truth, we can be directed to know every truth that we need to know for this time. But the problem is, Sometimes the truth cuts against our carnal nature and we don't want to follow the truth of Scripture because we really don't want to follow Jesus who is the truth. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 19, verse 12. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country. This, the nobleman is Jesus. To receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This is Jesus going into the heavenly sanctuary, and when he finishes his work, he will come back. Verse 13, And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. This is a message that we have, as Seventh-day Adventists have held for many years. We're occupying till Jesus comes. But the question is, what are we doing while we're occupying? How are we occupying our time? Now notice verse 14. Speaking of the nobleman who is Jesus, the citizens, that would be those in his kingdom and his church, but his citizens loved him. It's not what the Bible says. This is shocking. It says his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. In other words, many Christians say, we are okay with Jesus being the savior of our lives. We will accept his sacrifice, but what we will not accept is his lordship or his rulership over our lives. And if you are saying that, you are saying, I hate Jesus. Now that's a hard thing to hear. But that's what Jesus himself says. When I read this passage, these are words that are in the, they're in the letters read. Meaning Jesus himself says, My citizens of my last day church who do not want to follow me actually hate me. We will not have this man to reign over us. Now, friends, listen, there are... We all have various issues, various struggles that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, and every single one of us, whatever it may be in our lives, maybe it's alcohol or drugs, or maybe it's some secret sexual sin, there is something, maybe it's covetousness, maybe it's a gossiping tongue, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's resentment, maybe you haven't forgiven someone that you should have forgiven 20 years ago, and you still don't look them when you pass them on the way. Whatever the case may be, 
God has made it possible for us to overcome that sin and to live our lives in accordance with the word of God because Jesus in his great love for us died for us and when we see his sacrifice on our behalf it motivates us to love him and to set our lives in order with his life. But friends we are not living in ordinary times and as I close I will mention this I'm not necessarily picking on one sin above another, but we are living in a time now where the sin of homosexuality is not only accepted, but it has become celebrated, not only in the world at large, but even by some in the church. Now, every sin is sin, whatever the sin may be, but I don't see people going around and celebrating the sin of murder or the sin of adultery or the sin of theft or the sin of lying. There are still courts of law that will put you behind bars for putting someone to death or for stealing or for whatever else, but for the sin of homosexuality, you are celebrated and given awards as if you were somebody special. And friends, we as God's people in a loving way way by the grace of God are to be calling sin by its right name and not being accepting of the cultural values that have come into the world today. Now is the time for us as God's people to be followers of Jesus, to call sin by its right name, and in the love of Jesus show people that there truly is grace and redemption and peace and happiness when we follow Jesus the way he has asked us to follow him. And I would challenge each one of you today, whatever you may be struggling with, bring it to the foot of the cross. Lay it at the foot of Jesus, and he will give you the grace that you need to be a follower of him all the way to the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.